welcome to episode five of Keep Up Shut Up, the golf podcast. It's been away for a few weeks trying to find a putting stroke. I'm Tony Rushmer. And I'm Mike Morley, better known in 2020 as Hertfordshire's finest painter and decorator. Other painters and decorators in Hertfordshire are available. Um, For new listeners, and as a reminder for older ones, Mike normally introduces himself each episode as the Llama, his caddy nickname. But neither of us have had a bag on our back since last year as a result of COVID-19. And Prospects look bleak for a return to Inside the Ropes any time in the near future. So, Mikey, it's been all about the day job for you, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I must clear that up. The only the only bag that I've had on my back is my own bag, uh, and it is very heavy. But, uh, yeah, most most caddies uh, on our tour certainly have to you have to supplement your income somehow. And um, baby baby Lama and I set up the paint caddy, uh, which is a bespoke decorating business in Hertfordshire it's sat here I mean it's it's Sam's business really I just I just go along and he tells me what to do and I strangely end up doing all the work tone but um yeah it's um it's a nice little painted decorating business we're absolutely flat out uh, which is great because there is no caddying but Mike among all the uh, second coats and skirting boards you did find time for a nip down to the Kent coast uh, Prince's, wasn't it, for a, a much-previewed fairways battle with uh, Stay Sure Tour big hitter Pete the Pistol Wilson. Is that right? Yeah, we did indeed. The Llama Challenge, we threw down the gauntlet and um, uh, <clears throat> Pete raised him, raised himself and said, yep, come down, he'll take on the two llamas. So we headed to, to Prince's Golf Club and Pete was a, a fantastic host for the day. And Prince's, I have to say, Tony, I mean, it, it's world class. The work that um, I think the McGurk brothers have done on the club, uh, changing the course, is, is absolutely phenomenal. Um, it, too, too, too good for my golf. But, you know, Sammy, uh, I have to say, he absolutely stepped up to the plate. It was, it was fantastic. It was, it was shot for shot, birdie for birdie. Uh, and Samuel, I think he, I think he, got on Pete's nerves a little bit because he outdrove Pistol a couple of times. Samuel, we should just say, is uh, of course your uh, 19-year-old son and three handicapper or two handicapper? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a bandit off that as well. So I, I had that in my back pocket. I thought if I play badly, Baby Llama, Sammy, he'll be there. He'll be there like a like a prancing tiger. So yeah, we, we turned, actually, one down. And I thought that was a result because I'd, I'd visited various parts of the golf course by this stage. Um, as you know, Tony, you and I are in a bit of a golf crisis. But, but Samuel was, 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 going, was going at it. But, you know, it, I always felt that Pete, at any point, could just sort of step up another couple of gears. But that said, you know, it came down. The whole, the whole day came down to a six-foot putt on the last green at the great Prince's Golf Club, and uh, Pete, hold it, ruined our t- ruined our day. Uh, I suppose a little bit of home knowledge there. You know, uh, you'd expect Pete to make a six footer on the last, and uh, hey, 
he's the pro, isn't he? And he, he showed why by uh, sinking the uh, all all important clutch putt on 18. You did have a great time, didn't you? I mean, I remember you saying to me, Prince's was just unbelievable. Yeah, it's it, it's a great golf course. Uh, I think that the Dormy House is open now. You can book you can book uh, golf trips down to Prince's. It's well worth it. I mean, the views are amazing. The course is is phenomenal. Um, and it was you know it was lovely to catch up with Pete and talk about you know his stationary career and, and what ha- what's happening at the moment and and just get you know stuck into some golf really. Well, that, that that should be you and I sorted for a game of golf at Prince's next year after our uh, our five star billing. We, we should we should throw it out there. We should throw it out there that we'll we'll take on any stationary player. Indeed, we're about to be joined by uh, our our friend and guest for today, uh, Roger Chapman. So let's just uh, introduce him for those that that don't know him. Of course, he's won two senior majors, 2012. But perhaps people didn't know that back in the day, he played for Great Britain and Ireland in the Walker Cup. Also England in the 2000 Dunhill Cup. He's done a lot more besides, including recently falling off his bike, as we'll be finding out in a couple of minutes. Mike, a couple of thoughts on our guest before he joins us? Yeah, I, you know, Roger's one of those golfers. He's been around a long time. And what I like about Roger, he doesn't know this, but what I like about Roger is he's absolutely immaculately dressed all the time. His equipment is absolutely polished to within an inch of his life you know he's a model pro and he's he's spent years and years on the tour um you know he's got he's had a nice career and he you know he still hits a great guy he's got a great golf swing can still compress that golf ball with a decent set of blades and um he's uh, he's a fellow west ham supporter as well so oh enough 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 we've butted him up long enough time for our guests to join us Roger, many thanks for agreeing to be our latest podcast guest. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Uh, good to be good to be with you. Uh, you know, during lockdown, it's it's been a bit quiet, but um, yeah, it's it's nice to be sort of getting back out and doing things again. Well, doing things meaning falling off your bike in your case. You sent me something. What well, was a, almost a video nasty uh, on our WhatsApp conversation of your hand. What on earth happened? And are you back in one piece, Rog? Um, yeah, it didn't look get very good, did it? Um, we were there was five of us. We were just got we just finished going up this hill, and I was like in in third in the the peloton, and um, the guy in front said to his daughter behind you know oh emily look there's there's that place where your mum and i went lower and she just slowed down a fraction and i you know my head was down i just caught her back wheel i went over and all of a sudden you know i looked at my hands and i thought oh my god there's blood everywhere and yeah they rushed me to um the royal berkshire accident and emergency and um they patched me up are you golfing again now? Hands um, back to normal, stitches and what what not with taken out of your hands? No, that's that's as much as I can bend on the left hand. I tell you what, I tell you what, Tony, we could we could take him out. We could we could win. We he would have to give us shots. We we could win a match against Roger. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I went and played. I shouldn't have done. I played at Birkdale the other day with uh, slippery heels and um, tanked him. So and I played with nine fingers. So. Did you beat him? Did you <laughs> bring it? Bring it on! <laughs> now, as you know, Slippery is a big friend of the podcast. So, uh, 
Just confirm the result, Roger. Did you or didn't you take the money at Birkdale? Well, he was my partner, but uh, I was I was knock, I was knocking it past him off the tee. So um... very good, excellent. Um, Mike and I are delighted you, you're joining us, and I will let Mike kick us off with the with the serious stuff. Mike, what do you what do you want to ask our guest today? I think before we get to the highlights of, of your tour life, Roger, we want to dig back into the past a bit and tell us. You know, we asked the same question of everybody, really. How, how you came to play golf um, and whether it was your first sporting love? I, I was, it was about 10 years old and I was caddying, used to go up to Faversham Golf Club, caddied for the old man. And, uh, you know, I was always fairly good at sport and uh, I had a good eye for a ball. And I just said to him one day, can I have a go? And he said, no, there's no future in it. <laughs> red rag to a ball um and one day i left him on the golf course and went to the pro shop got a bucket of balls and a club and started swinging it and he, he said well at least he can hit it he sort of let me have a go and um and sort of the rest is history uh, i was always pretty good as i say pretty good at sport i played kent under 16 schools cricket uh with graham dilly all oh, right yeah so yeah i was yeah it was all right i was all right Mike alluded to that swing, Rog. It is one of those that um, your fellow competitors on the Stacia Tour covered. Have you always been, for want of a better phrase, a graceful swinger and had that sort of perfect golf swing to, 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 to an outsider? Or has it something you had to hone? It's something I've had to hone. I had the basics there. But um, when I was a youngster, I mean, I couldn't get the club past, you know, vertical. Couldn't get it to horizontal. And um, I then met a guy, George Will, who was the pro at Sandridge Park Golf Club, three-time Ryder Cupper. It was a fortuitous meeting. And played around golf with him, and he said, look, I'll teach you. And uh, we took it from there, and he gradually got me to swing a little bit longer and, you know, made my way through the amateur ranks. Yeah, I won the Kent Open as an amateur in 77. Won the English amateur in 79. Uh, and then the Lytham Trophy, which is basically the British Stroke Play Championship in 81 and um, culminated in uh, Walker Cup in, in 81. Yeah, that, that does tee me up to my, my next question. I've done a little bit of research and saw that you had, albeit in a, a losing side that week at Cypress Point, you had a great week. Um, how a big a deal did the Walker Cup feel like? And am I right in saying you took out a couple of lofty scalps that week? Yeah, it was it was a great week. I mean, I, I actually went into the tournament or the event not playing so great, but found something. You know, we were there. We stayed at the lodge at Pebble Beach. I mean, as a uh, as a twenty one year old kid, um, you know, we were we died and gone to heaven. You know, staying at the lodge, playing at Cypress Point, which was if I had one round left in my life, that would be the place to play. Um, so I was found something on the range and then uh, I normally teamed up with Paul Way in the foursomes but for some reason Rodney Foster changed it round he put me with uh, Peter McAvoy um, Way Way played with somebody else I can't remember it might have been Phil Walton or something anyway we lost that morning first morning's foursomes I won the singles in the afternoon and then Rodney put us back together again because Paul and I were unbeaten in foursomes for English golf and Great Britain. Why they split us up, I do not know. Um, and then uh, the next morning, I played, Weiwei and I played number one 
match against Jay Sigel and Hal Sutton, stuff them three and two or something. <laughs> and then uh, then I played Sutton in the afternoon, number one singles, and I was four under after six holes and was one up. We had an unbelievable game. Um, I managed to, I think I finished two, three, four, three to beat him one up. God, what a game. Was, it, was he their big hitter? Oh, yeah, he was their blue-eyed boy. And, I mean, two years later, he won the USPGA, so, you know. That was some match, wasn't it? I mean, you've been involved in lots of golf games down the years, but to slug it out, Walker Cup, wearing the badge on your, on your, on your polo shirt, to win one up at Cypress Point, I suppose that would be one for the top 10 golf memories, won't it? Doesn't, doesn't get any better than that. I mean, I was, you know, when we had the flag-raising ceremony at the, at the opening ceremony, you know, the, the hairs on the back of your neck go up, you know, the national anthem goes up, and, you know, there were tears. I mean, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. You know, then after the after the Walker Cup, you you turned pro, and you know you won your your tour card on the first attempt. What what were the what were the early days of the tour like back then? Well, my first ever event as a pro was the work the Cacherel World Under Twenty Fives in uh, Nîmes in France. I didn't play particularly well. Nîmes was a, it was a tough golf course, and you know I was shooting 76s, 77s, 74s, and I thought. What have I done turning pro? I mean, it was it was ridiculous. You had a you know up until that point, you know, you, you were playing great golf. You had, you know you played really well in the Walker Cup. So you, you probably went on to the tour and thought, you know, I can I can achieve here. So did you did you see it as a step up? Oh yeah, it was a huge step up. Um, I was a sort of a big fish in a little pond on the amateur circuit, and then all of a sudden I turned pro. I was a little fish in a huge ocean. Um, and it was a totally, totally different thing. I mean, the, the attitude of the players, even back then, was you know w- working hard and um, practicing and doing all sorts of things. But uh, I literally thought after uh, Neem, I thought, what have I done? And then I went to the tour school, got my card, finished second at the school to my old mate Gordon Brown Junior. Um, I mean, he he won it by three, and I finished second by five. Third was five shots behind me, so you know we we sort of cruised through that. Um, mind you, I wouldn't want to do go through that you know system again or or, or that uh, suffering because you know the the standard of golf is pretty damn good now. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's a, it's a brutal place to go at the best of times. Tour school. So you know, back in those days when you turned pro, who who were your buddies on the tour, and who were you who were you rooming with, and and, and going through tour life with? It was first year was junior. After the first year, we did we both decided we've got to get single rooms because <laughs> a because you you know if you were opposite times, you know some guy would be getting up at five thirty six o'clock, and the other one, the other guy's playing in the afternoon wants to lie in. You know, it was pretty unfair. So we decided after quite a quite a short period of time that we'd uh, we'd go singles, and it was it was much better. But I mean, Junior was, um, as you know, God bless God rest his soul. He was one of the funniest buggers out there. But uh, yeah, he was hilarious. He was probably playing pranks on you all the time. Then was he? No, uh, we were doing stuff on each other. It was it was ridiculous. I remember the first year we or the first time we went two was the Tunisian Open. I think he finished fourth in his first tour event. 
Anyway, we're ruined to get. I, I, we'd met at the airport, and you know, mums and dads are there, you know, waving us off and everything. And he's come out with his pitted forehead. <laughs> and I thought, what have you done? Because I met Junior sort of five years before, and we'd become really, really close friends. And he says, "I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later." So anyway, we get to Tunisia. We get to the hotel. We get in the room. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in my bed, and all of a sudden. The bathroom door comes out and he just sticks his head around the corner and he's got the shower cap on. I said, what are you doing? <laughs> he said, I've had a transplant. <laughs> so he's, he's, he said, he's had all the, like a, it was like a, you know, the yellow potato gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's taken, oh, he was, he, apparently he looked like um, the elephant man after the operation. <laughs> so his head's, out, his head's out here. Anyway, by the time he gets to Tunis, he's fine. And then, but he's got these pits. So they've taken plugs out of his forehead <laughs> and taken the hair out of the back of his head and put those, those little sprouts of broccoli on the front of his head. And it just, it was, it was hilarious. This, is this back in the early days of, of hair transplants before it's become <laughs> the science that it is now, Rog? It sounds like some horrendous process. It must have been because he said, um, you know, before the operation, he was really worried. And the surgeon said, do not have any alcohol before, you know, within 24 hours. So he was so worried, he had a bottle of wine the night before. <laughs> so as, as the guy's taking the plugs out, there's blood coming all down. His the surgeon says, you've been drinking, haven't you? He says, yeah. He said, I told you not to. <laughs> Fran Jr. is undoubtedly one of the most missed people on the Stay Sure Tour. It's almost a year now. It's a year on Friday that he went. And uh, you, you alluded to it then when you said he won tour school by three shots. He was a fine golfer as well in his prime, wasn't he? Oh, he was. I mean, in, uh, his um, first year he won twice and finished seventh in the Order of Merit. I mean, that was an unbelievable start. Um, boy, but he, he worked hard at his game. You know, they say Vijay Singh worked hard. This guy was on the range as an amateur all day long. Was he really? Some player, some player, and he kept it going, didn't he? I mean, he could still turn it on quite easily right up until his, his last weeks as a, as, as a professional, as a, as a man. He had the bottle too. He had so much bottle. Um, I remember we were down at Porth Court and he's taken Greg Norman apart down, you know, down the final stretch and won the, the one in, uh, at Porth Court, the Wales Open or something. He could do it. Who are the who you, you mentioned Bottle there? Who are the players uh, that if it, you know if you were to stake your last fiver on them? Who are the grittiest, nuggetiest players back in the eighties, nineties? The guys that were tough. Oh yeah, Faldo, uh, Woosnam. Oh, you know the big six in those days of the you know the Ryder Cups. Torrance had a lot of Bottle too. Um, you know, I always always felt that if I'd have had one of their heads on my shoulders, I'd have won a lot more. So, we'll come to that in a moment, Rog. We will come to that. Um, in fact, I was thinking about you not just because you were doing the podcast, but also because Miguel Angel Jimenez today or this week celebrates his seven hundred and seventh European Tour event. Um, Rog, how many did you? How many did you make, um, Rog? I mean, you were kind of in the serious big hundreds, weren't you? I was six hundred and teens something 613 618 something somewhere around there 
Well, that's longevity, but Miguel's taking it to even greater levels. He's now 56 and still out there. You will, you will have come across him many times in the, in the sort of late, mid to late 90s. What are, your, what are your recollections of Miguel Angel Jimenez? And how amazed are you that the guy who came out on tour, who wasn't prolific at the outset, has become this astonishing golfer who's banked millions, tens of millions? It's amazing what, how he's done it because, as, a, as you say, when he came out on tour, I mean, he, he, wasn't, he was nothing special, uh, with all due respect. Um, you know, he dressed up in, you know, he'd come to a golf club in denim trousers and denim jackets, you know, hence the, the name Mecha- The Mechanic. Um, but well, since he got to 40, he's been a different, different person. It's incredible what he's done from the age of 40 to now. I mean, in 16 years, I mean, the events he's won, it's incredible. Do you, do you like the guy? I mean, obviously, we all know him as uh, uh, this popular, affable character, but he's also another one of those fierce competitors that we were just talking about. Yeah, exactly. He's got, he's got a strong head on his shoulders. Um, we've had a couple of glasses of red, you know, together. <laughs> You've had a glass with most players, Roger, haven't you, over the decades? I've had a few in lockdown, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, join the club. Well, I mean, I'm interested to, you, you know, if you played over 600 events on the, on the European tour, what, what, what were the changes from when you started to, to when you came to the end? I mean, with, it, it, I guess the whole hospitality thing, it just became a lot easier. Well, in, in my first year, 82, you had to lug your own practice balls. You had to, there were no courtesy cars. You were, there was a bus or a taxi. There were like three buses in the morning and three buses in the afternoon. And if you didn't want to take those buses, you got a taxi. Um, as, then there was no players lounge. There was no fitness um, truck. There was absolutely nothing. I mean, the, the guys, your caddy had to go out and stand down the range and, and pick up the balls, firing at you. I mean, people would come back with knuckles bruised and... You know, being hit on the shoulder, being hit on the head, and oh, it was it was carnage. Yeah. I, I mean, when I when I caddied for Caesar, I always wondered how he got around European events without satnav. You know, I, I mean, how did you uh, you, you were just travelling to these events in far off places in Italy with just a roadmap and a day to get there? Well, we had a, we had a guy, a company, a guy called uh, Randy Fox who used to do pro, um, Randy Fox pro travel and so for all the uh tournaments abroad you know he would organize the flights and the accommodation and he'd give you like one two or three different hotels to stay at um so all the 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 european stuff was done it was when you got home you know you just basically got the old um a to Z Atlas, um, Atlas Tower and <laughs> plotted your way around. Very good, very good. Back on, on, on to your career. Um, you, you just half alluded to it then. There were a couple of perhaps events you wish you'd done better in some near misses in, in the 80s, in particular the late uh, 1980s. Pipped in a playoff or two, Jersey, Holland. Were those cl- close shaves kind of tough to take or, or did you sort of just think, my day will come? No, they were tough to take because, you know, 82, you, you know, or you read the press and they're building you up, building you up, say he's going to win this, he's going to, he's going to do well. And then um, I think if I'd have won the 
the European Masters at Concierge in '85, my career might have taken on a different path. I mean, I was I shot 61 in the first round. I think 61, 69, 67 was leading by two or three. Craig Stadler shot 69 last day to pit me. Um, I didn't have a particularly great last day. It was one of those courses that you, you know, you you had to get going. If you if you didn't, it was an easy course. But if you didn't get going early on, you know, you were just trying to press the 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 button to to keep going and uh, or get going and forcing it. Um, and as I, as I said, didn't didn't quite do that. But um, and then as you say, at eighty eight, I lost in the five hole playoff to Des Smith in the Jersey Open. Um, there was a couple, I think, the Dutch Open. I finished second twice, two years in, on the spin, lost in one playoff with Rafferty and Elizabeth. They went nine holes, I went one hole. It was poor and it was blowing a gale. I got the same as Rafferty. <laughs> He'd done nine holes and I'd done the one. <laughs> but, Rog, you've just, you've just sort of given me something that I've, I've long thought about. It's blooming hard to get over the line, isn't it? When you're up there on the leaderboard with, a, with the guys that are around there, even now on the stage or two tour, it's hard to actually close it and win, isn't it? It's not easy. Yeah, I mean, back in those days, you had 156 people playing. Um, you know, if you finish second, you've had a great week. You haven't won, but you've had a great week. You've beat, beat 154 uh, other guys. So... Yeah, you've got to put it in perspective, but it, it's always it's always nice to win. And you know, I'll, I'll be I'm always honest with myself. I've I backed out of a couple, lost, had a couple taken away from. I ring the the Moroccan Open one year. I think Clinton Whitelaw won, and he finished birdie, eagle, par to beat me by one or something. You, you can't legislate for that. You can't. You can't exactly. If a guy turns on that sort of golf and, and you're playing maybe birdie par, birdie golf, you know, it's, it, you can't legislate for someone with that sort of late flurry. But did you ever wonder if the boat might have passed you by? Because it wasn't until Brazil 2000, your 472nd event, that you actually got it done. Did you ever wonder if maybe just you weren't going to finish your illustrious career as a tour winner? Well, I think at the end of 99, I lost my card for the first time ever. And I thought, right, that's it. I've done. Can't, you know, your immediate reaction is just, you know, I had a good little run, 19 years on the tour, blah, blah, blah. And it was the year um, Payne Stewart passed away at the end of the year. Remember, you know, the plane crash and everything. And, um, and Sky Sports News asked me in to do a little feature with them on, on Payne. And at the end of it, I thought, here's a guy that wants to play and can't play. And here's me, can play, doesn't want to play. So, you know, I got my act together, went to the tour school, finished 12th. And then, lo and behold, March time, the following year, 2000, I won the, won the tournament. And it was always, I, th I always felt that if I was ever going to win a first tournament, it was going to be from behind, you know, coming up on the rails and, and just nicking it at the end, And which is what I did. I was, I think I was five behind uh, Harrington going into the last round, shot 65, I think it was seven under. 
we we tied um, one in the second hole of the playoff. So, you know, when it when when you got to the end of your your European tour career, were you were you ever going to go on to the senior tour? Were you going to hang the you know hang the clubs up or whatever and just move on to something else? No, 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 no. I I was um, desperate to get on the senior tour because I felt that I could you know do okay. Um, so what I did was when I quit the the main tour, you know, when I felt that I wasn't competitive and you know you. If a good a good week was the top twenty, you know we're out there we're out there to win or to, you know try and win as many times as we can. So I quit the the main tour, and I just quit. Didn't pick up a club for six months because I felt that I'm I'm stale, and if I want to get my enthusiasm back, um, I'll just take a bit of a break from it and uh, and go and do you know do something else. I I did some refereeing on the uh on the senior tour um so sitting on the buggy watching your mates play i was desperate to get out there so you know come may 2009 my first tournament in songwal i was desperate to to get going i opened up birdie birdie and finished third in the tournament so yeah i was off and running again your breakthrough win on in, in senior golf I mean, it, it couldn't have been any more impressive. What happened in in 2012, landing a major, the Senior PGA Championship, which is a you know a flagship event, and then weeks later you you go and repeat uh, the trick, winning the US Open. Uh, you know, what are your re- talk talk us through what happened and talk us through your reflections on those two fantastic wins. Um, well, it, it was weird because. 2012, I, I, I went to the tour school in, in America in 2010 and got a conditional card. I actually thought I'd got a, a proper card, um, but they'd put uh, medical exemptions in between fifth and sixth. Um, so all of a sudden, instead of being sixth, I was like 12th on the list or something. So right. I didn't play, thinking I had a full card till, it's, till September 2011. Um, I had really pretty much no status at all. Status, that's American, isn't that state? <laughs> Come on, mate, you're um, a West Ham fan. They don't say status <laughs> in East London. And so we, we, Kathy and I went and we sort of got used to America, a bit of travelling there. I, I managed to, by hook or by crook, got in 11 events. Um, felt a bit hard done by, didn't go back to the school in 11. And then our only tournament before the USPGA in 2012 was in Mallorca and I, from tee to green I played absolutely great didn't hold nothing um, so I was driving so we went a couple of weeks later we went to Harbour Shores was playing really really well um, and it just all clicked everything clicked um, I think my stats were something like 91% of fairways hit and 87% of greens hit for the week, well, you, you must have you must have hit the tenth green. <laughs> it's enormous. <laughs> yeah, I did in the last round, but uh, remember, you know, the, you know, the pin was on the bottom, and I was on the top tier. And I, I look back, I look back, and they're saying, "Well, they, you can't keep this on the green." Blah blah blah. Anyway, I hit a good putt to that eight feet, missed it. So, um, but I was cruising at, the, at that time. I can I can see you know having been to Benton Harbour a couple of times I can see how it would suit 
your game. But but you know, talk us through that tournament to to, to the, the the point where you won it. I mean, how it, it's, it's such a big deal to win in America. Oh oh, it was huge. It was huge. Um, I mean, I went out. I, I was lucky. I I teed off early Thursday morning and shot 68 so I was three under and the wind got up in the afternoon it was that was such a shame and anyway I was leading after the first day and um the previous night uh Wednesday night I'd come down to the hotel reception I said anywhere to eat around it and they said oh there's a local place just down the road called the Grand Mere Inn so I went down there had a meal I'm eight on my own uh, took a book couple of glasses of wine you know 68 next morning so I went back Thursday night and uh, no superstition yet and then woke up next next day shot 67 in the afternoon leading again I thought right okay I've, now I've got to go back Friday night so I went back Friday night um, woke up still a table same table um, same book and shot 64 playing with Halo and John Cook and all of a sudden I've got a five shot lead so um, Bobby Clampett and um, David Frost who, who looked after me in 11 2011 and 12 um, they said oh we're having a barbecue around our place tonight sorry guys I'm going back I'm going to back to the Grand Mayor Inn. So now that the Grand Mayor Inn know who I am, tables there, you know, everything. Um, so I went back and, you know, won. But I played, I played unbelievable. It's just one of those, you know, the stars aligned. I played, played great. Nobody was going to beat me that way. Did, did, did um, obviously, a winning any, any event in America is, you know, it's a fantastic achievement. It, it was a major, the Senior PGA Championship. But then you win the US Senior Open. Could you believe it coming like that? I mean, a little bit out of the blue. Bear in mind that, as we said, it, it took you 470-something to finally break through on the European Tour. Could you believe that you went bang-bang on the senior circuit in America like that? Really, it's, it's kind of fantasy. It's, it's a fan- it is. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, um, as you say, fantasy stuff. But um, Gavin Christie... Um, took over as my coach from George Will, who died in 2010. Um, so Gavin sort of just took me to another little level. Um, and I've just, for, for six months, I've just played so good. I, I mean, obviously, you, you know, you had huge confidence after the USPGA. So that kind of helped as well, I guess. It does. I mean, but even so, I mean, I was four shots behind and Mr. Bernard Langer going into the last round. So, you know, everybody's thinking, who's going to come, who's going to come second? Um, and probably me as well. Uh, Langer just shot 64 next day. But there was something, in the, but there's always in the back of your mind, when somebody shoots a low round one day, it's very difficult to keep it going, do another one the next day. And that was, that was what I went, the, the, the thought I went to bed with, He's not going to shoot 64 again. So you've got, you've got a chance. And lo and behold, I birded the second hole. He double bogeyed this, that second hole. And all of a sudden, you know, four shots is one shot. And I thought, right, here we go, game one. And that was the difference in my attitude 
you know, I'm thinking, right, I can go and win this. It's the back nine of the US Senior Open. How, how do you how do you contain your thoughts and how do you stay in the moment and what sort of things do you do you say to yourself to keep yourself going? Well, I had Kevin as my caddy and that was amusing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he was, you know, when you could understand him from Bootle, um, he, was, he, was he was a good calming effect and just chatting away and he, he sort of, he, he did a great job and the, the two... The two tournaments, he did a fantastic job, and you know, keeping me calm. And and but it does help when you know you're you're playing your best golf of your career. Well, it settles down the mind a bit. Yeah, absolutely, because you know that you're you're hit you're you you cannot swing the club any better. You're hitting the ball as good as you've ever done, and because you're hitting greens, you, you're having chances on every, you know for birdies on every hole. So, um. And then there were a few holes on the back nine that I, you know, I birded three holes in about five holes, um, hitting good iron shots close and getting the putter going. But I have to, say, I have to give Kath credit. We played um, Pebble Beach the week before the U.S. Open, and I wasn't putting very well at all. And so Saturday evening, I asked, I said, Kath, because she follows me around and she knows my little little things I do on the on the putting green, and she. She's having a look at me. She says, What's the, where's that thing you do where you put your hands forward? You know, like the forward press. Yeah. I said, am I not doing that? She says, no. She's right in here. So bang, bang, bang. So next day, I shoot 69 at, um, uh, around Pebble Beach. Uh, get the putter going. And so she's taking all credit. I was going to say, I have to say, she was, um, she was commander-in-chief on the fairways when you won in the Seychelles. And on a, a, the Stacia tour, well, she was she was organising everybody. We were we were we were out on the golf course on the 18th green, waiting for you to come down. I mean, that was a that was a great event. I mean, do you remember? Apart from it being really hot, do you remember anything about winning in the Seychelles? Oh yeah, I probably probably every shot um, because at um, 18, I'd had a shoulder operation, so I was out for about five months. When, then when I came back, I probably came back a bit too soon. You know, but it was the it was this, this senior open at uh, St Andrews, and I was never going to miss that because you're never going to probably play another tournament at St Andrews. I might play there, but certainly not another tournament. And my son was coming over from Canada to caddy for me, and um, so I, so I had to had to be there. Anyway, I made the cut, which was absolute. Brucey bonus, um, but then you know, gradually started getting my game back a bit. But I was nowhere near qualifying for the Seychelles. Um, I had to finish top five in Mauritius the week before to get to Seychelles. Um, finished third, so you know, all of a sudden our, plan, our travel plans have, have changed, and you know, we've got to go via Seychelles. So I'm on t- on. Cloud Nine, and what a beautiful place Seychelles was. Uh, we had a little bit of rain on the first morning, I think, sort of four-hour delay or something. Um, and then I think everybody was, I think, again, they were playing for second with Miguel Martin, you know, so far in front. Um, then he faltered and, you know, managed to uh, nick it from him. I mean, we were we were sitting in the clubhouse watching it on the on the television I heard. Uh, yeah Kathy's in there going he's made another par he's birded this and 
you know, and then we were, we were a little bit, uh, say we'd had a few drinks. I wouldn't have guessed when I came into the clubhouse <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> oh, right. This was the end of season event, everyone. And I think uh, the mood was there for a party long before Rog won. I caught up. I caught up very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so just, you know, following on from that, how do you like the Stacia Tour? What, what, what does it give you, you know, being on the senior circuit? Well, A, you've got a, you've got a second chance. I mean, what other sport are you playing really competitive sport at the age of, you know, 50 to I'm 61 now and still feel that, you know, I can compete out there and there's no other sport that you can do that. So it's, it gives you a second chance. Secondly, you're playing with your old mates again from way back on the tour, you know, in the eighties, um, early nineties. And it's just good fun. Um, no, no cuts apart from the majors, three rounds, happy days. What, one thing I, I really admire about Roger, and there are lots of things apart from his West Ham tendencies, but one thing I admire is oh, no. when things aren't going well, <laughs> when things aren't going well, Rog keeps a lid on it incredibly well until just occasionally, just occasionally, <laughs> he'll disappear and you'll say, where's Rog? And you'll hear this loud, exasperated, ah, is that a fair <laughs> comment, Rog, that you privately have a moment? <laughs> I would say that's quite um, watered down, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I did slightly dilute it. I wasn't. I was going to mention a certain word I heard once at Hanbury Manor when we were. I could. Oh, I was. I, I was terrible. I was terrible. I, re, I remember my old man um, playing with him once at Faversham Golf Club, and I had a bit of a paddy on the course, and he came round and whack straight round. Don't you do it again. Never learnt, do you? Father and son say. But let's um let's just look into the future. Obviously, we have no golf on the horizon on the Stacia Tour. And, of course, we have concerns about how long the pandemic's going to stay around, second wave, etc. For golfers over 50 and some over 60, is there a worry among you as a group that it's going to be hard for things to return to, quote, normal in 2021? I, th I think you're dead right. I mean, what, what, is, what will be normal in 2021? Um, will it be normal that we still have to social distance at the golf club? Or will the golf, you know, will the clubhouses be open? Or, I mean, on the main tour at the moment, they've got these bubbles that they can go into. Hanbury Manor, you've got a bubble, the hotel's on site, um, where they are this week. Forest of Arden, there's a hotel on site, so everybody can... Um, that was because uh, I'm on the tournament committee of the senior tour, and that was our, one of our main concerns. You know, if you go to Arras, uh, everybody's staying all over the place, different different areas, and then you come together. You know, somebody might have picked it up from somewhere, and you know, they, and I don't think the tour wanted anybody from our tour because we're in the vulnerable vulnerable category over 45. You know, God forbid anybody that, um, you know, passed away from it, um, you know, it would have been a disaster for the senior tour. So I think they've made the right choice. I still question whether we will go to Seychelles and Mauritius if there's a second wave. Um, there are no cases in Seychelles or, or new cases for quite a while there and Mauritius. So, Without getting into specifics, do you think... 
there will be players that may still have reservations about travelling, and 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 do you understand why that could be the case? Absolutely. I mean, you, you look at um, you know the twelve-hour flight from from London to Mauritius in a you know in a tin can. You're having to wear a mask, and you know some people will feel uncomfortable and won't go. Definitely. Okay, Roger. This being a a caddy inspired podcast give us a, a couple of thoughts you having had plenty of bagmen over the years give us a couple of thoughts as to what constitutes a good bagman the key components for you first of all you've got to get on with the guy because you are out there 24 7 with him at a tournament so if you don't get on with the guy then you know you your history um there's there's plenty of guys that you know I, i've liked but you know, been out on the ray or on the golf course with them, and just you know, nothing's clicked. But um, you know, I've had people like Edinburgh Jimmy, and as I say, Kevin Laffey, and I had um, Nick DePaul one one year. Um, we carried for Seve and and the majors and everything. One at the Open at St Andrews with Seve, and he was he was a great caddy. But you you got you got on well with the guy. That was first and foremost. And then, you you know, the guy's got to have, obviously, have knowledge of the game and you know, knows what he's doing and what he's not supposed to do. And, um, and he doesn't have to be a, you know, a scratch handicapper or you've just got, you've just got to get on with the guy. That's, and, you know, it's, you, you're, he's the bag man and that's what he does. But So you're essentially saying, actually, because you're there five, six hours a day together, range, and then on the golf course, it's actually... The most important thing is that you you can kind of be in their company for that length of time and rock along together. Exactly, and that's that's all I've sort of asked of, of caddies. Um, they don't necessarily have to be great players or anything, no. But their knowledge of the game has to be good. Like yourself, Tony. You know when we caddied at Forest of Arden. Roger, it's been a delight to to have you join us. Really good company. Um, I hope that you haven't found it too much of an endurance task listening to Mike's uh, Mike's questions. Rog, we'll see you down the road, hopefully sooner rather than later, and wish you all the very best, buddy. Yeah, thanks, guys. I've enjoyed it. Good to see you again. Lovely to hear from Roger there, wasn't it? He was in great form, and he's one of the uh, tour's all-time good guys, isn't he? I, I love Roger, playing with Roger Chapman. When, it, when the draw comes out, it's always good to, uh, to have a round with him and a uh, fine player that he is. It was, uh, it was great to hear some of those stories with, uh, with Rog. Yeah, the podcast has thrown up plenty of stories in, in the five episodes that we've done so far. It, it, it's, it's been great to catch up with the likes of Phil Price, Paul Eels, and now Roger Chapman. Uh, so do give them a listen, folks, if you haven't already. Um, and I've also enjoyed spending time with you, Mikey, believe it or not. What, have your, what are the things that you've enjoyed about doing the, the podcast, Keep Up, Shut Up? Well, obviously, working with you, Tony, has been a real joy. Um, life, life changing, I'd say. <laughs> it's, it's life changing. <laughs> um, but I, I've been really, I've been really grateful for some of the comments that we've had back from the players, and uh, and also, you know, I want to, I want to thank the Stayshore Caddy Shack uh, WhatsApp group. The guys on there have given us some really positive uh, feedback. Um, the East Peckham Golf Society and a few notable friends that have come out of the woodwork to to listen to podcasts. I've, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it um and it's great to get some good feedback 
the East Peckham Golf Society, Boise Marlene et al. I'm sure. Um, I I don't I don't think I can follow that. I would just like to say my long-suffering golf pal who I trudge around the fairways of Cambridgeshire and beyond with Ian McFarlane. He he put up with a real moody me this morning as I chipped and sclaffed and duffed and dunched. Um, so cheers, Ian. Your support and your time with me on the fairways, as well as your support, keep up, shut up, and uh, is much appreciated. And I'll promise to be sweetness and light when we play next week. I would also, before we finish up, uh, like to thank our producer, Carl. And I'm going to throw to you, Mikey, for the last word, because as always, I don't doubt that there's something that's caught your eye or something you want to share with us, some pearl of wisdom that you can just brighten up our day with. Well, I've got a couple of little pearls before we pull the shutters down on episode five. As you know, I like to uh, come up with a little fact. And uh, the first one is is, uh, technology moves on. Now, believe it or not, in 1993, US Masters, Germany's Bernard Langer was the last player to win a major championship using a wooden-headed driver. That's number one. Very good. Very good. Bring them back. Bring them back. Yeah, very good. That'll, that'll stop these 350-yard drives. <laughs> yeah. I've got the other one I've got for you, you'll never guess, but golf is one of only two sports to have been played outside of planet Earth. Can you name the other one? On the moon, I'm assuming that you're alluding to with golf played on Earth and beyond. Well, I'd give you a point if you knew what club he used. but Seven or nine iron, wasn't it? No, it was a Wilson six iron um, and he hit the golf ball miles and miles and miles, apparently. Still going. Yeah, still going. The other sport to be played outside of planet Earth was the javelin. How did that happen? Go on. How did that? You, just, you can't just leave us hanging. The javelin... Obviously, someone stepped off a spaceship and threw a javelin. Where it ended up, I don't know. Well, like, like that golf ball, it's probably still going. Um, I, I, and we're, um, we're still going and we shouldn't be. So I'm going to say thank you to everyone that's lasted through that uh, shaggy javelin story and come to the end of the fifth episode of Keep Up, Shut Up with us. Um, thank you all. And we will be with you in the not too distant future. Until the next time, on behalf of Mike and I, a goodbye. Goodbye.